By next year, our spending for drug law enforcement will have more than tripled from its 1981 levels. This, this is crack cocaine, seized a few days ago by drug enforcement agents in a park just across the street from the White House. We have to hold every drug user accountable because if there were no, uh, no drug users, there would be no appetite for drugs and there'd be no market for them. We do not need another failed war on drugs. What we need is a reckoning and accountability for drug companies who put profits over people and rob us of lives and freedom of our loved ones. You have created a nationwide epidemic. 450,000 people have died. Let me be clear. People struggling with addiction are not criminals. Your family and Purdue Farmer, you are the criminals. You are the ones who disregard your duties to society and you should be ashamed of yourselves. I yield back. On this episode of Outside Counsel, we're digging into the socioeconomic factors that play a significant role in the opioid epidemic. My colleague, friend, attorney, and activist, Larry Taylor, will be joining us for an in-depth and candid discussion about how the opioid epidemic has devastated particular communities of color and particular communities that lack the resources to deal with the opioid epidemic. I am Jeffrey B. Simon, and this is Outside Counsel. Probably right at eight years of marriage, uh, I decided I no longer wanted to be an investment broker and I decided to become a lawyer and went to law school with three kids at the age of ripe old age of 35. At that point, uh, you know, I worked for the speaker in the parliamentarian's office. I worked for a member of Congress, Edwin East Johnson, for several years before becoming a prosecutor. And then landing on your doorstep, Jeffrey, and where you took me in and taught me everything that I know. Hmm. When you say the speaker, you're talking about in the Texas legislature, is that right? Texas legislature. Tom, I uh, worked for Tom Craig. Now, today, you're primarily a plaintiff's lawyer in the civil justice system, right? At this point, Jeffrey, that's all I do, uh, from uh, dealing with opioid litigation to world to environmental. And so more of pretty much my case docket is all mass tort litigation. Our audience that's listening uh, may not see that you have a pin on your lapel that is a seven. What is that lapel? You know, the Seventh Amendment, access to, to, to the courts. And so it's really important for me for people to have access because a lot of times access is not really given to those who don't have the money to get access or don't have an understanding. And so besides my MDL uh, work, I do a lot of pro bono work just to ensure that people have access and the courts work for everybody. Why do you think it's important that the Dallas County opioid case is being tried to a jury of lay people as opposed to a judge? It's because these are the people who were affected by it. These people who were either themselves or family members or neighbors, they live in Dallas County. And this case is speaking to Dallas County residents as to the harm that happened to them. And they should be the ones who make that judgment call, no one else. Um, and that's what's so important about speaking to this particular jury and having it in Dallas 
County because no one in Dallas County knows how this has affected them or how this could benefit them other than Dallas County jury members. The most contentious legal issue in opioid litigation is whether or not public nuisance is a cause of action that should be available against opioid drug manufacturers, distributors, and uh, retailers or pharmacies. What do you think about the argument that opioid cases are really just products liability cases and that there is something unholy about using public nuisance to pursue what is being characterized as a products liability case? I look at this as a, a water main, right? And the drug manufacturers having access to decide how much of that water flows into a city. Well, they opened it all the way up and flooded Dallas County. And it's a nuisance because just like a flood, some people get harmed, some people die, some people get delayed. And the same thing happens. Some people got addicted, some people got addicted and died. Family members became addicted and healthcare costs and uh, EMS and the coroner and police departments and our jails. And so this flood and tidal wave of drugs that they just open up the valve and just let rush through Dallas County is a public nuisance, just like water would be if you were to turn up the valve and just let it flood the county. They flooded the county with drugs, Jeffrey, and that is a public nuisance because it took away and required more manpower to deal with those individuals who were either breaking the law behind these drugs uh, because they were addicted, those individuals who saw an opportunity because the drug manufacturers created a market. Those things created a public nuisance. What do you think about the argument that says, okay, let every one of those addicts bring their own products liability claim? What about that argument, which is, hey, the law already exists for that. Why are you trying to extend public nuisance law to uh, drain this proverbial flood and hold uh, the drug companies responsible for it? Number one, that's not the route that um, we decided to go, and it's not the most feasible route. And dead people don't talk. And there's still a burden on the county as far as expenditure and making sure that these individuals or the county took care of these individuals as well as the manpower and resources that went behind it. It's still a public nuisance. And not just that, but what about us taxpayers who pay additional taxes or taxes for these services? We too were harmed. So in, in essence, everyone was harmed by this, whether you were an addict, whether you were a store owner and you had your grocery store or your pharmacy broken into, police had to come out. And so that all affected the taxpayers and everyone in the county. And this particular lawsuit ensures that everyone is taken care of. And so for those who are still addicted uh, with a victory, we'll be able to help those individuals fight their addiction and get back on their feet and become viable citizens. So I think it's fair to say that lawmakers and law enforcement have responded differently, especially in recent years, to the opioid crisis than we saw in response to the crack epidemic of the 1980s. Very true. 
Why is it true? So it's, it's, it's two hats for that, right? You can see that one primarily had to deal with pharmacies and actual corporations. The other had to do with a street level drug. The concern for especially those of African-American community is that what about us in the eighties and nineties, you know, we had tough on crime litigation, but there really wasn't the kind of uh, fire lit up under them as it is or it has been for the uh, for the opioid addiction. And so, you know, the African American community looks at that and says, okay, is it because Opioids affected a, a wider range of people that included people who were not of color. Why now is there such interest in putting a stomp or a, a stop to oh, the opioid addiction? So it's just one of those one of those questions that always lingers uh, in the minds of even people like myself sometimes. Well, there, there's a lot in that answer. Uh, and let me break it down a little bit. Number one. Clearly, the response of law enforcement uh, and lawmakers in the 80s and 90s was to, quote unquote, get tougher on crime. Whereas now, especially in Dallas County, law enforcement is much more oriented towards a treatment model mm -hmm. that addiction is a disease. It's not a sign of criminality, but can result in criminality to feed the addiction. So if you go to the source, which is the disease, you make the person in the public safer. Is that just an evolution in our understanding of addiction or is it the difference between who's getting sick? I think it's almost two parts. You know, here you have drug manufacturers who are force feeding doctors, false information uh, and creating addicts. And so I think a large part of it had to do with our evolution, understanding how addiction works, um, how we can treat addiction. And, you know, as we live longer and we continue on, science gets better, right? You know, there's more studies, there's a better understanding. And so now something that you didn't have in the 80s and 90s were better drug treatment facilities, a better understanding of how to deal with it. And so, you know, you know, like I know that we've spoken with specialists who now understand better how to deal with opioid addiction and how we can help people get back on their feet. And so I think that's part of the issue as well. And the criminal courts have also taken notice and have pulled back on being tough on crime, especially when they're un they understand that there's something else behind the causation and they want to try to help individuals now versus just send them to prison and have them come out and overdose because they tried to take the same amount of drugs that they took before they went in, or they start that cycle back again of stealing and doing the things that they were doing in order to get them sent to jail. Do you have clients who are still in jail for drug possessions prosecuted 15 years ago that would not have been jailed for the same possession today? Of course. Everybody's family to me. So, Jeffrey, I have, I have a family member who was 19 or 20 and was arrested for crack cocaine, hadn't been in trouble, is on parole for 50 years. 
50. And then just dealing with the people who I've come across who have been addicted. Because number one, Jeffrey, you know, the Cochran firm, our firm does, um, we have several different sections that, that operate within the umbrella. And one of those that also manages our, our criminal law department. And we still see uh, situations and probably even greater numbers now of young people who are addicted to opioids. Uh, it's a party drug and it is unfortunately killing these young people. You mentioned you work for the Cochran firm. That, of course, was founded by the great Johnny Cochran. Correct. One of the great trial lawyers in American history. And just an overall good person. How heavy is that burden? While you cast your own shadow with your own terrific legal skills, you also walk in his. You know, Jeffrey, it's it's an honor. Our client, Dallas County, is one of the most uninsured counties in terms of its residents in America. Almost 40% of Dallas County residents either have no insurance or have too little uh, health insurance. How can we help the population that is suffering from opioid addiction without those insurance proceeds? Where's the money going to come from? And Jeffrey, that's the perfect reason of why we brought this litigation, because the drug manufacturers and distributors and the pharmacies have created this vacuum that has just piled on the burden on the healthcare system and leaving some of these people without. You and I have talked to individuals that have had health insurance and had resources, right? And so they were able to send their kids to the best treatment facilities across the country more than once. But, 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 but what about, you know, the Johnsons and the McAllens and these individuals who are blue collar workers who don't have, like you said, great insurance and they have the addiction issue. It's, it falls on the drug manufacturers, the pharmacies and the distributors to go ahead and pay up and provide those resources so that we can help those individuals. So at least they can have a common, normal life or excel and do whatever they, they may be able to do, but have that opportunity. And so that's why we brought this lawsuit. What do you say, if anything, about the criticism that, okay, I hear you. We didn't do as well as we should have in the 1980s in terms of understanding the nature of addiction and humanizing rather than criminalizing the disease itself. But the truth is, you're not going to go sue a crack dealer. I mean, the only difference between this epidemic and that one really is that you've got deep pocket drug companies to sue. And that's really what this is about. What do you say to that? say that that's partially false. There are similar laws to public nuisance that allows individuals to go out to crack dealers if the house is in a neighborhood and considered a community nuisance. Uh, There's uh, things, especially in Dallas County just recently uh, in the municipal courts, that you can actually uh, sue those individuals to try to seize those homes. And so this is just a larger conduit of that type of thinking, right? If you're causing a harm, there's a mechanism for the county or individuals to go after those individuals or companies or drug dealers causing the harm uh, to the community. And so, you know, I, I think that 
it's in bad taste for you to pay individuals hundreds of thousands of dollars to convince doctors to hand out pills like it's candy and you benefit from it and then turn around and say, woe is me. Shame on you. And Jeffrey, we've seen this. They've actually uh, said things like, you know, it's not really addiction. They're just in more pain. And so you need to continue to, to that's a blatant lie. That's a blatant lie. And, you know, for decades, they knew that that was a lie. It's their own reports said it was a lie. But the propaganda that they put out, you know, if there was an award for getting propaganda from the beginning of time, uh, from, you know, people telling people that polio really didn't exist to now, they would win the award of all time because they knew and they put so much money and effort in covering up the lie that it's really hard for me to understand. Let's talk about the role of policing in the opioid epidemic. When we think about African-American communities, we have to be mindful of the fact that uh, two uh, values uh, have to be balanced. One is, of course, they want and are entitled to safety and protection and public peace. But on the other, uh, they're often rightly fearful of police violence against them. You know, I've had great experiences with law enforcement, and then I've had some rough experiences with law enforcement. Never been arrested, but I was once detained in handcuffs at gunpoint for simply being in the wrong neighborhood. We have to do a better job at, 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 at training our, our police officers, but more importantly, uh, not more important, but just in, as importantly, we have to make sure our law enforcement can identify mental health and addiction issues. And we need the resources for them, not for them necessarily to potentially handle it, but for them to call for additional resources to help deal with those individuals, right? Because the last thing we want to see is another television uh, news broadcast of some young person, black or white, being shot because they were just having a bad episode because they were addicted. They weren't harming anyone. They really weren't doing anything, but they necessarily weren't responsive. And so we need to make sure, both for the safety of our officers and for the safety of our community, that we have resources to be able to come in and train and provide support for law enforcement in that regard. And as far as the, the differences in the community and based on the color of your skin, Jeffrey, you know, I don't know if there's the next Freud out there who can come up with a test that can diagnose those individuals before they get on law enforcement that have some kind of ill will uh, for people who look different. Uh, whether they're transgender, Black, Hispanic, or anyone of color, or anyone who just looks different, and weed them out before they get on law on, on the police force. I, I I wish there was something like that. But as a father of of Black children, my son is 6'3", 310 pounds. When he leaves the house, I pray like nobody's business. Because he is the sweetest, gentlest person. I mean, he helps everyone. But you look at him, I'm his dad. And I look at him like, I'm not tussling with this dude. And my, and my oldest, 
And all of my kids, my old, and he's in college. He plays football. My oldest is at Columbia Law School. He's tall. You know, he has this real unique look. Great kid. He's 6'4". And the danger that I have with him is that he is going to be a lawyer. And so he's pretty smart. And so he may ask the right questions, which we all have the legal right to, and it could cost him his life. And so, Jeffrey, I, I, I don't have an answer to that other than I just need people to be good people and understand that everybody wants to go home. That's one of the first things I tell officers, even when I get a traffic ticket. How are you doing today, officer? Let's let's get this taken care of so both you can go home and I can go home safely. To let them know, hey, man, I want to go home just like you want to go home. I know I went on a long, a long time, but that is, Jeffrey, such a loaded question in that regard. Because I just don't have the answer when it comes to policing the different communities and some of the prejudice that might shine through on how you deal with things. But at the same time, being former law enforcement, I know the resources and the training aren't there to help try to prevent some of those issues that you you initially mentioned. Larry, you talked about uh, the need uh, in the policing of African-American communities to have uh, personnel who are skilled in de-escalation. Do you know of uh, areas in which law enforcement are successfully engaging in that reimagined kind of policing? You know, I think it's slow, but you have places like Minnesota, you have places like Colorado, places where they're now really taking a strong look at uh, policing and how it's being done. And so, you know, it's slow, it's still early on, but I would love to see things in which you have mental health counselors potentially ride out with police officers who have been alerted that those type of actions are happening. Uh, I think that we need police officers to be partnered with other great police officers so that when they go out, uh, they don't necessarily feel threatened because a lot of times you have individuals who are by themselves and they're with someone who is having a manic or an addictive attack and they're fearful or could be fearful or could feel like they are fearful. But with someone else there, I think a team of individuals um, would do a lot better, especially if we had better training at de-escalating these issues. I have seen reports that while violent crime is up in a number of major American cities, it has actually gone down in Minneapolis during the period of time in which they have implemented reimagined policing. Whether or not those uh, are directly related in, in Minneapolis, uh, that change and that drop in, in violent crime, I leave it to other experts uh, to determine. But I will say, I don't know of any community where reimagined policing has coincided with increases in violent crime. Do you? No, no. And Minneapolis is, is really interesting because you have segments of Minneapolis that are actually being policed by their own communities. 
And so it's really interesting. And, and going forward, we definitely need more statistics and research to show what's happening in Minneapolis and see how we can potentially use that information to help uh, deal with other communities across this country. But I think, uh, once again, I think a large part of it, and it's going to be changing how we train police officers because we train police officers basically to get home safely. And if that means to shoot and kill to get home, then that's what you do versus everyone deserves to go home. Everyone. And so I, I think we need to do some reconditioning in, in that regard. What do we do about the problem that policing the illicit trafficking of prescription opioids is much more difficult than uh, policing the criminal trafficking of illicit drugs simply because prescription opioids can be legally possessed? The, the illicit portion, Jeffrey, like I said earlier, you know, it's, it's the, the carrot and the horse, right? You had this opioid prescription frenzy. You created this business for drug cartels and, and you know, bad guys to, to provide, you know, illicit drugs. But I'm a firm believer in that if addressing one issue, we can address the other. And that the policing of dealing with the illicit drugs coming into this country, that's fine. But if we can deal with the addiction, people won't have that need in order to seek out those illicit drugs because they can no longer get them from legal forms from their doctors. You know, that's, I, I think, honestly, the carrot is dealing with the prescription issue. If we can deal with the prescription issue, the policing of the illicit drugs will handle itself, but also addressing the addiction will also handle dealing with the illicit drugs. Because you know what? Drug dealers and drug manufacturers aren't too different, right? Neither one of them is going to sell a drug if they can't make money doing it. In the Chapter 11 reorganization in bankruptcy court of Purdue Pharma, the company mm -hmm. that produced OxyContin, still does. A Faustian bargain was made by governments all across the country, state and local, by people who are suffering from addiction and are represented by counsel, by people who represent babies born uh, addicted to opioids, neonatal abstinence syndrome. And that bargain was effectively that if the Sackler family contributes billions of dollars to a trust to pay claims, they will escape future legal liability. Was that the right choice or was that the wrong choice? I hate to pose a question with a question, right? If I shoot you and I have a six shooter and I hit you and you say, hey, I won't create any legal issues for you if you pay me and I pay you. The problem is I'm still holding the gun and I have five more bullets. And you just told me I'm not legally liable for shooting. Why? Why would you make a deal in which you told someone, hey, you harmed me, pay me, but they still have the ability to continue to harm me? That just doesn't make sense.
Well, let me add another wrinkle. As you know, of course, the Sacklers have been separated from Purdue Pharma. The entity has been renamed. Uh, it is now dedicated to, uh, to exist for the purpose of generating money uh, to fund the trust uh, for the payment of claims. But the Sacklers undoubtedly kept most of their money mm -hmm. and escaped criminal jeopardy, even if they had it. True. Do those wrinkles make your analogy any different, any better, any worse? No, no, Jeffrey, because, I mean, we're lawyers, right? I mean, we might not practice corporate law or anything of that nature, but we know a shell game when we see it. And, you know, moving money around and throwing my hands up and saying, hey, I don't really have anything to do with this, but, you know, I have stock or, or I have interest or financial interest in these other companies and but I don't have anything to do with it. But behind closed doors, you walk into a room and you tell the CEO and the board what to do. And then you walk back out and said, I just came to visit. You know, I just said hi. But when you really went in there and said, hey, look, you guys aren't making me enough money. Can you please force more opioids in because I need to buy another item? I mean, it's just. It's not anytime you move, remove that liability. Of, of having legal action taken against a person for causing harm, man, you open up the doors for more bad acts. For millions of Americans, the opioid epidemic is a first person problem. Either they're suffering from addiction or someone they love is suffering from addiction, which affects everybody in, in the gravitational pull. How do we resolve the problem of the existing group of Americans uh, who are reliant on opioids for the relief of chronic pain. You have a real debate between patients who say, I had persistent chronic pain that interrupted my life in every way possible. It was so intense that I considered suicide. And the only thing that gave me relief was long-acting opioids. And then on the other side of that, you have addiction specialists who say, it didn't give you relief. Opioids have never been proven safe and effective for non-cancer chronic pain. All that's happened is, is that while it gave you some relief, it's actually the fact that you are physically dependent upon those opioids and that you could actually be tapered to other things therapies, which not only control the pain as well, but treat the underlying cause of the pain. And there are no good guys or bad guys in that debate, but there's certainly a wide rift between them. How do we manage that problem going forward? When it's all said and done, the consumer has the final word as far as what happens. You know, you go to your doctor, he gives you option A and B, and you, he lets you choose. What we have to do is we have to do a better job at creating and educating individuals on the dangers of opioids, as well as uh, convincing them to give option B, which is a non-addictive, a safer, even proven way to manage their pain. And so we need to do a better job at that. We need to do a better job at educating 
our, our medical professionals uh, as well and try to change the narrative so that we don't have this problem. Because the thing is, opioids is like a hand grenade. Whether you take it or not, if you put it in your medicine cabinet, it's just waiting for some 10-year-old to come and pull the pin and blow themselves up. And so if we can get them out of the marketplace and get them out of the system or the streets of this country or Dallas County, then we'll win. We're in a better position to win. You know, Jeffrey, I, I think one of the things that I would conclude with is we're doing this not just because it's our job, because we like being lawyers. We like helping people. And while we don't run around with muskets and we don't do drills, we are on the front line at defending the Constitution and defending our fellow citizens. We make sure that bad laws are changed. We make sure that people who harm people pay. And I think it's important for people to understand that, and as lawyers, that you hear that from another lawyer. I didn't serve my country in the armed forces. But at the same time, this country was founded on the base that a group of lawyers decided that they weren't going to be overtaxed and overburdened anymore. And while they didn't put up, while they didn't pick up a musket, they did fire the first shot in a courtroom. And we are the continuation of those Americans. And so I enjoy what I do. I am extremely blessed that I'm able to do what I'm able to do. And I'm extremely thankful that I have been able to get past some of the obstacles that we discussed earlier, dealing with race and gender in this country to reach the level that I am today. And I am extremely humbled by the opportunity to work with you. You know, that's what gets my engine revving in the morning is being around great lawyers like yourselves. If our audience wants to find Larry Taylor to talk about whatever they want to talk about, how can they contact you? They can always reach out to me. The law firm website, CochranTexas.com. Um, it's the Cochran Firm Dallas on Facebook. Uh, I am at, at Larry Taylor II on on Instagram. And, you know, I, there should be a, uh, another media coming out. Uh, Taylor made law. We'll be hitting the, the social media scene soon and they'll be able to reach us that way. Larry, if there is someone in the African-American community who says, I or someone I love is suffering from opioid addiction, and I would like to talk to somebody in the African-American community about it. Uh, of course, they could contact you, but is there someone uh, in uh, the healthcare uh, or faith community that you know of off the top of your head uh, where we could direct them? So I'm gonna say this, Jeffrey. So not only being African-American, I also sit on the board for uh, Los Barrios, which is, the, I do believe, the second largest Latino clinic in the state of Texas. And so with people of color, 
uh, in communities of color, one of the first places you can always go is your local community clinics. Um, a lot of these community health clinics have addiction resources. And that's a great place to go because normally they're within uh, either walking distance or bus routes of those individuals who don't necessarily have great resources. And so those are one of the first places that I would go. I know that we have one that talks about mental health and addiction. And from there, there's resources to take that will get you to places like MetroCare, places like Parkland and other locations where you can go and you can get help to battle your addiction. And to that end, the purpose of the case you and I are doing together is to get resources to build the infrastructure to make it easy for people who are suffering from opioid addiction to get treatment on demand and to be able to stay in treatment irrespective of their ability to pay. Bless you for that. If you or someone you know is struggling with opioids, please visit www.addictioncenter.com to learn more about the available resources in your community. This podcast is produced by Shannon McDees of Revel and Convey and Larry Shivana. The opinions expressed on outside counsel are neither legal nor medical advice. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers, guests, experts, and or hosts. They do not expressly nor necessarily reflect the opinion of any institution with which I am or ever have been a member and should never be attributed as such. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Outside Counsel. I'm Jeffrey B. Simon. On the next episode of Outside Counsel, we interview Christy Cuvalier, a loving mother who lost her son Hunter to an opioid overdose only one month ago. You'll learn that we found her because she wrote Hunter's obituary and in it, she tells the story with enormous candor and courage that he died of an opioid overdose and what she understood his journey to be from addiction to recovery, to overdose.